Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Welcome tonight uh, to our study of end times. And tonight we are on our Roman numeral 4 on the sheet schedule of the events that take place before and after the return of Jesus the Messiah. And we are on Roman numeral D, the marriage of the Lamb to His bride, the church. And this takes us over to Revelation chapter 19. And we will be reading verses 2 through 9. I'll go ahead and just start with verse 1 to pick up the flow. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in the heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. I believe that what we're seeing tonight is the greatest event of not only human history, but of all ages and times. I believe everything that has happened since creation has been moving us to the place of the marriage of Christ to His bride, the church. I believe at the heart of the universe is this divine romance. The Father has been desiring and seeking a bride for His Son, Jesus. He created this earth so that He might place human beings on this earth And from those human beings bring forth a bride for his son. And they would live together through eternity. He raised up the nation of Israel to bring forth the Messiah, Jesus, who would do what was necessary through his life, death, and resurrection to secure this bride and be joined to his bride And they would live together, ruling and reigning throughout 
eternity. I'm convinced, I believe, that everything that has happened, everything that will happen, is bringing us to this point. This is what it's all about. That's what it's all about. God saved us. He's redeemed us. He has brought us to be His own, adopted us into His family for the purpose of providing a bride for His Son, Jesus. Take a few moments when you get a chance just to reflect on that truth of the divine romance that has shaped and is shaping and will shape all that there is. Now tonight we're looking at the marriage of Christ to the church. As you can see, it's only a few verses that speak about this. And so if we're going to get a better understanding of this truth, we need to go back to the Jewish wedding and what was involved in that and then compare it to the bride that Christ has and his marriage to the church. So we're going to be drawing a parallel. The left column is the Jewish wedding procedure. Uh, the right column, the Lamb's wedding procedure. And I think it is rather insightful what we can learn about Jesus' bride and his marriage to his bride from the Jewish wedding ceremony. First in the Jewish wedding ceremony, the father of the groom would usually choose his wife. You remember when Abraham sent his servant to go back to his homeland to find a wife for his son Isaac. You remember that story? I found Rebecca. That was the custom for the father of the groom to choose the bride. What do we see with Christ and the church? We see that God the Father chose us before the foundation of the world to be the Lamb's bride. In our scripture passage sheet, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, just as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, or His goodwill and pleasure, is a better, more literal translation of kind intention of His will. What does that tell us? That tells us that there was no merit in us that deserved being chosen to be the bride of Christ. It was pure grace and pure love. Before the foundation of the world, for we were ever born, for we'd done anything good or bad, God in His sovereign goodwill and pleasure chose those that would be the bride of His Son, Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 
But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning, before the world was made, in the beginning, God created, from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And so God the Father took the first steps and chose those who would comprise the bride of Christ. Second step, the prospective bridegroom took the initiative and traveled from his father's house to the home of the prospective bride. Now, on your scripture sheet, I have given the numbers on the left correspond to the number of the point that we're talking about, so I can help you follow along. Christ left his father's house and came to earth to gain a bride for himself. Again, in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. He came and he emptied himself. He took on flesh that he might gain his bride, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Number three. The father of the woman then negotiated with the prospective bridegroom the price that must be paid to purchase his bride. And this was kind of the groom's financial responsibility. This was a way that the groom would uh, assure the father that provisions would be made for her. I wish that was the case in our day. Uh, and the kind of the thought was that the the groom would pay the father of the bride this amount of money, and he would set it aside so if something happened to the groom, then there would be provisions made for his daughter, who would be a widow at that point. In the story in Genesis 34, Shechem asked Jacob what price he wanted for Dinah. You can look that up again just to show that that was the custom. When it comes to Christ and the church, Christ had to pay the price of his own blood. That was the diary, the price of his own blood. 1 Corinthians six nineteen says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Again, in Peter 1, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. Jesus came. He purchased us. He redeemed us through his blood. He was willing to pay the ultimate price of his own life to secure his bride. The fourth step, when the bridegroom paid the purchase price, 
the marriage covenant was thereby established. At that point, the man and woman were regarded to be husband and wife, even though no physical union had taken place. They were betrothed. That was considered to be as binding as marriage. That meant she would not see another man, that she would keep herself chaste and pure for her husband. The marriage covenant had been had been cut, and it was considered binding at that point and could only be set aside through divorce. And you know the story of Joseph and Mary and how he had was assumed she had become pregnant outside of, of, of the marriage relationship, outside of this engagement time, and he was going to set her apart, but it had to be through divorce. So this is a very binding covenant here. Notice the church has been declared to be sanctified or set apart exclusively for Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. So as his bride, we are to be set apart from the world. We are to remain spiritually pure and chaste. We are to only have love for him. Again, as Ephesians says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Paul told the Christians in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 6, Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. This is why the Scripture continually stresses that the people of God are to be different from the world. We are to come out and be separate from the world and the world's ways. For us to live according to the ways of the world in its sinfulness is for us to be unfaithful to our Lord. The nation of Israel, when they would go after strange idols, they were considered to be unfaithful to God. They were considered to be spiritual prostitutes. We as Christians, when we have come into this covenant and we are set apart, we are engaged, betrothed to Christ, then we are to maintain a pure and chaste relationship with Him. We are to exclusively love Him supremely. He is our Lord and our God. The fifth part of the Jewish wedding was the moment the covenant was established, the bride was declared to be set apart exclusively for the bridegroom. The groom and the bride drank from a cup over which the betrothal benediction had been pronounced. This symbolized that the covenant relationship had been established. Now notice that Christ symbolized this marriage covenant through 
the communion at the last supper. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11? In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. We are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Lord's Supper was that celebration of that covenant in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul speaks about us being sealed with the Holy Spirit. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. What promise is that? The promise that we're going to marry him someday and he's going to bring our salvation to its fullness and completion. The Holy Spirit, who is a pledge, given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. You see that word, who is given as a pledge? You see that word pledge? That's like down payment, earnest money. It's kind of like the wedding, the engagement ring. You know, what the engagement ring symbolizes is this man has asked this lady to marry him and as a show of his commitment, as a show of his good faith, as a show of his intention to marry her, he gives her this engagement ring. Now, technically, if he breaks off that marriage, she should get to keep the ring. He has forfeited his down payment, so to speak. He has forfeited his... Uh, deposit if he breaks off that engagement. The Holy Spirit is Christ's pledge, guarantee, you might say engagement ring, to us, his bride, that he is going to marry us. It's impossible for Jesus to forfeit the Holy Spirit. So it is not even a possibility that he would not carry through with his commitment to marry us and for us to be his bride. And the Holy Spirit is that guarantee, Paul says. We are sealed in the Holy Spirit. He is that pledge of our inheritance to the review of the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Now the sixth step, after the marriage covenant was in effect, the groom left the home of the bride, returned to his father's house, and he remained there for a period of 12 months, separated from his bride. Christ returned to his father's house following the payment of his purchase price. You remember Jesus talking to his disciples when they were upset about his imminent death. He said, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. So he said, in my father's house, Jesus went back 
into the presence of the Father. And he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And although his spirit is with us, we are separated from the resurrected Christ at this time. Now, number seven. During this period of separation, the bride gathered her wardrobe and prepared for married life. The groom prepared for married life as well. The groom prepared living accommodation in his father's house for the bride. So he was back getting things ready for her, preparing accommodations. She was busy making her wardrobe and getting ready uh, for the wedding. The church will be gathered together and we are gathering our wardrobe and preparing for married life during this time between Christ's first coming and His return. He's preparing a place for His bride and is also sending pastors and teachers to perfect the bride for the coming wedding. We just saw in John 14 where Jesus said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. So Jesus is preparing a place for us in heaven. We are busy about preparing our wardrobe, as we see in Revelation 19.8. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is a righteous act of the saints. Now someone has rightly said, notice it says, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. This says to me that Christ has imputed to us His righteousness. We are washed clean in His blood and He declares us righteous. The Father declares us righteous and holy in Jesus. At the same time, that is our positional holiness. I believe we also are seeing here something of what we call our practical holiness. That we, through our righteous acts, are also making wedding clothes for ourselves. But remember last week we talked about the rewards that were our works that would stand the test and what we would do when we'd been given those crowns and we were standing before our Lord, we would throw those crowns at His feet, saying, anything I accomplished was because of you, Lord. Well, I think this is what we're seeing here, that we, the church, are to do good works, and these righteous acts will be a part of our wedding garments, but it's because God has enabled us to do it. And they give you some verses to back that up. Look what Paul says in Colossians 1.29. He says, For this purpose also I labor. Now if you thought 
If you just read that, you'd think, man, Paul's working hard and he's doing it all himself. But then he goes on to say, striving according to his power. In other words, Paul said, I'm working hard, folks, but look, it's not me. It's God's power working in me. And he says, which mightily works within me. So at the same time Paul was working, he was acknowledging it was God that was enabling him to work. Remember what we said Sunday? Who can boast because what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't? That's what he's saying. Anything I did, it's because God enabled me to do it. Again, he picks this up in Philippians 2. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if you stop right there, you'd think, man, he's having to do it all. This is something he's just pulling up his, himself by his bootstraps and working hard. But then he goes on to say, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul says, work it out, but realize it's God who is enabling you to work it out. You can't get proud in your working it out because it's God who has given you both the will and the ability to do it. And then in Ephesians 4, he talks about, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And so again, God has given uh, pastors and teachers and evangelists to help bring the bride to her spiritual maturity, her Christ likeness. And it's given to us these wedding clothes, and at the same time, by His grace, we're able to do good works. So basically what I'm saying to you is, you are making your wedding clothes now. I, I would say, if I thought the men could get into it, you're making your wedding dress now. And the women can get excited about that. You know, that's a big thing for a lady. Guys, that dress she wears on her wedding day. Outrageously expensive. Outrageously so for the amount of time they wear it. But it means a lot to them. It's special to them. And most people keep it the rest of their lives somewhere. And even sometimes relatives use them. But anyway, you are preparing your wedding garments now in this life. Number eight. After this period of separation, the groom, the best man, and other male escorts left the house of the groom's father, usually at night, and conducted a torch-light procession to the home of the bride. Now, the bride was expecting her groom to come for her. However, she did not know the exact time. Thus, the groom's arrival was preceded by a shout. Now, she knew it would be around 12 months, but she didn't know exact day. But she knew when it was getting close. And so she had to be sitting on ready. I don't think she wanted to have a hair up and curl and say, wait a minute, let me go take everything down and get ready. I mean, she had to be pretty ready so that it wouldn't take but a moment to put on the finishing touches, so to speak. Uh, and notice how this parallels the church. 
Christ's return will be preceded by a shout. We see that in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. We expect his return, but we do not know the day or the hour. And when he returns, he will defeat the Antichrist who has harassed the bride. Jesus told a parable of the ten virgins. You know that story. The point of the parable was the necessity to be prepared, to be ready. You don't know when the Lord's returning, so we must be vigilant. We must be prepared. We must be diligent in our service. He will defeat the Antichrist. He will destroy the false suitor. The Antichrist has sought to defile us. He has sought to seduce us. And when our groom returns, he will take care of the Antichrist and the devil as well. Number nine, the marriage feast was usually at the home of the groom, but sometimes at the home of the bride. God will give the greatest marriage feast imaginable for His Son and His bride, the church. We see that in Revelation 19. Then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are true words of God. Number 10, the bride and groom then entered the bridal chamber and in the privacy of that place entered into physical union for the first time, thereby consummating the marriage. Christ's union with the church will take place for all eternity. First Thessalonians. Ephesians 5.31 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, Paul says. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. He says that in some way, Christ and the church are going to become one flesh. I do not pretend to know how that can be. It is a mystery, and it is still a mystery. He said this mystery is great. But nevertheless, it will happen. We in our resurrected bodies, Christ in His resurrected body, join with Him in the greatest event ever as His bride. And then the festivities. The wedding festivities lasted for a week or more and were filled with great, joyful singing and great partying and festivities. It was a joyful time. This thing would, would go on. I mean, it, would, it, it wasn't just for an hour or two or three like we do in our day, but, I mean, it would be for days. And even maybe weeks, it was a great time of rejoicing, celebration, of happiness. And we shall enjoy the millennium as we reign with Christ for a thousand years. 
And I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and did not receive the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's going to be some honeymoon, folks. thousand years. We're going to look at that honeymoon and detail in the weeks ahead as we look at the thousand-year millennial kingdom. That concludes our study for tonight.